Good morning, Woodland Hills. So good to see all of you. Uh, appreciated that worship time. That worship time was powerful. You know, I thank God for the podcasting that we have here, and it reaches a lot of people. And God bless all of you podrishners. We, we appreciate you. Uh, but there's something about being together with God's people and worshiping in God's presence. It gives, it, there's just a power and electricity to that. And so for you podrishners, I hope that you have some place that you can go where you're on a regular basis uh, worshiping with other believers. It's an indispensable aspect of uh, walking in the kingdom. Well, uh, if you're visiting here, what we do at Woodland Hills Church is not very fancy. We, we worship God with passion, and then we just try to preach the Word of God uh, in truth. And so, uh, are you ready here for some truth, some pure, undiluted truth? Yeah. All right, you, all right, this is, going to say it straight. Uh, we're uh, up to Luke chapter 22, and I'm going to backtrack a little bit because last week we jumped ahead to cover this, uh, the Lord's Supper uh, uh, episode. So we're going to backtrack a little bit. And we're going to talk about Judas. So I want to entitle this message, Judas Christianity. Judas Christianity, and we're reading out of the book of Luke, chapter 22, starting with verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. You recall, Jesus has been teaching in the temple for several days, and, and the people have been listening to, to him. And so the muckety-mucks of the, the religion of the time uh, were concerned that the people were going to follow him and turn against them. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Called Iscariot. Just make a note of that. We'll come back to that a little bit later on. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. Matthew tells us it was 30 pieces of silver. Judas consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And then let's jump ahead, read a few more verses. This is at the end of the Lord's Supper. It's still about Judas. So I'm including it in this uh, uh, pa verse package. Um, and so I'll go down to verse 21. Jesus says, But the hand of him who is going to, who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. An interesting question is, was that also decreed? They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Two questions I want to address uh, this morning. The first is, was Judas be uh, destined to betray Jesus? Was this predestined? Was he fated to betray Jesus? And the second question is, why would Judas, Judas do this? Why would he betray Jesus? Pray with me here for a moment. Father, uh, we're going to be addressing some foundational stuff here, especially with this second question. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would open our minds and open our hearts to receive your word for everybody in this auditorium, for all our parishioners, all the others who maybe are, are getting this message through, through television. Holy Spirit, right now, move on them. Whenever it is that they're listening to this or watching this, move on their hearts and minds. Give them an open heart and mind to receive your kingdom in all of its truth, beauty, and radicalness. Holy Spirit, take down all defenses that would possibly come in the way of, uh, and block the full entrance of the kingdom. And Lord, we just pray that we would 
go out of here uh, more thoroughly surrendered to you and your kingdom than we, were, than we were when we came. Because that's what it's all about. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 So question number one, was Judas fated to betray Jesus? There's a lot of people who believe that he was. He was predestined to betray Jesus. And at first glance, uh, you can understand why. There's several verses that, at least on one reading, seem to suggest this. So let's look at, at some of these verses. And by the way, some of this will be new to some of you. I just ask that you keep an open mind. And we're going to, on the front end, be going through quite a bit of Scripture. So if you want to take notes, that's fine with me. So uh, some passages look like they suggest that Judas was destined to betray Jesus. In John 6, for example, it says, Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray Jesus. Now, it's not clear what from the beginning refers to. Does it refer to the, the beginning of Jesus' call towards Judas or the beginning of Jesus' ministry or some suppose the beginning of the world? But it certainly seems at least, at least on one reading here, that at least from the time that Jesus called Judas, he knew that Judas was going to betray him. So it looks like Judas was fated, at least from the time that he joined up with Jesus, he was fated to betray Jesus. In John 13, it says, I am, Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. Quote, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. It's quoting Psalms 41. Now, Psalms 41 was written a good thousand years earlier than this. And you might get an impression that on the basis of Psalms 41, somebody has to betray Jesus. And so you might come to the conclusion that a thousand years before Judas was ever born, it was destined, fated, that Judas would betray Jesus. And then in John 17, Jesus is praying and he says, While I was with them, he says to his father, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me, that name that we just sang about. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. So that scripture should be fulfilled. Some translations have destined for destruction. So that scripture should be fulfilled. And so now it looks, as many teach, that from the start, from the start, beginning of the foundation of the world, Judas was destined to betray Jesus. And that raises some interesting questions, doesn't it? If Judas, if it was a, a done deal that Judas was going to betray Jesus before he ever came into this world, well, I, for one, kind of feel sorry for the guy. I mean, come on. A poor Judas. Uh, if it was a done deal before he ever was born, well, then it doesn't seem like he could have done otherwise. So now you wonder, how is he to blame? People, you know, frequently vilify Judas. He's nasty, he's evil. But if the cards were stacked against him in a decisive way from the start, well, then how can you blame the guy? And whatever happened to the God of love, who supposedly loves everybody? Uh, here, Judas was created, fated to be doomed to destruction. That doesn't seem like the God of love. That doesn't even seem minimally fair. What's up with that? But it's not just theoretical questions that this teaching raises. It raises some practical questions. I, I don't think I'm the only one who has maybe gone through a, a period of my life uh, where, does it ever feel like the universe has just got it in for you? <laughs> God has got it in for you. Um, it, it just seems like, like, like you're destined to be an outsider, you're destined uh, to not be saved. Uh, I've shared this uh, you know, several times uh, in the pulpit. I won't go into the whole story here, but there was a period of my life 
where I just came to this conclusion in this church I was in, where you're only as saved as your last sinless moment, that there's no hope for me. I can't walk the walk. And in that moment, I came to the conclusion that I, I'm fated to go to hell. I think it's the darkest thought a human being can think. But I, I thought, I can't do this. And I got mad at God, and, and that's when I said, God, this is all your fault. And I hope you're enjoying this because I came into this world and the cards were stacked against me. You're the one who gave me all these hormones that I can't control. Put me in this house where my dad has all this pornography all over the place. I mean, the cards were stacked against me. Do you ever feel like that? You could call this the Judas complex, where it just seems like maybe it's the good news is for everybody else, but I'm the outsider. Maybe it's because of what I did or, or just circumstances, but it's the Judas complex. And there's, there's a part of the human mind at least there's a part of my human mind <laughs> that, uh, you know, do you ever go like to the worst nightmare imaginable? You, you, you just entertain the thought, dreadful thought of what's the worst possible hellish thing that could ever happen? For me, it's being buried alive. I, since I was a kid, that just freaks me out. I think I saw a horror movie or something and, and waking up and you're in a coffin six feet below the ground and uh, you're there. Total, total pitch, pitch blackness and just... And you're in that car. Oh. <laughs> One thing is worse than that, however, and that is to not run out of air and to realize, perhaps, that this is going to go on forever and ever and ever, buried alive in a coffin. <laughs> and I, I remember a nun telling me in third grade that hell is your worst nightmare that never ends. That's my worst nightmare. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Am I the only one that thinks that way? <laughs> You are one sick puppy. <laughs> no, here's the thing. I know and we all know that I'm utterly, utterly at the mercy of God. He, had, he can do whatever he wants with me. If he wanted to, he could do that to me. I'm at his mercy. And so what if there is a mean streaking God, a, a sadistic streaking God? And what if he just decides to take it out on me? I can't do otherwise. It's... I have to totally, and you have to totally, we all have to totally trust the character of God. And if there's a malicious streaking God, a dark streaking God, a, 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 a sinister streaking God, well, then I might be the one that expresses that towards. And if Judas could be damned to hell from before the time he was born, well, then I might be damned to hell from before the time I was born, and so might you, and so might your little baby. And see, to the degree that there's any suspicion about that in our view of God, our, our relationship with God will be one of please don't damn me rather than this passionate love we just got through singing about. This, this free love that we just want to extravagantly pour out towards God. If there's any doubt in our mind, any possibility that God might be the kind of Kafka God, if you will. Kafka has, you know, he writes his sick novels. And, and, and if there's any streak of Kafka in God, well then, then I might be in serious trouble and my relationship with God will be one of please don't boil me in oil and bury me alive rather than this man do I love you and, and pour my life out towards him. You see, God isn't the kind of God that wants that sort of sick, kowtowing sort of relationship. Any healthy husband does not want a wife who kowtows to him in fear. Any healthy husband wants a, a bride who is extravagantly in love with him and freely pours herself out to him as he freely pours himself out towards her and I'm here to say this morning that we, uh, our, our heavenly husband is a healthy husband, a loving husband who doesn't want a kowtowing bride, but a bride who freely and boldly just pours herself out in love towards him, knowing that he has a relentless love that we sang about earlier, that pursues us and chases us and never gives up on us. So what do we do about Judas? 
What do we do about Judas? I don't believe for a second that Judas was faded. And I, I think a close reading of Scripture bears this out. Let's look at a couple of phrases that are used in those verses that uh, we read. First of all, this phrase, from the beginning, used in John 6, ex arcase. It means from the start of something, but it's a nonspecific phrase. It doesn't specify when that start was. And usually the start is, pertains to whatever the subject matter of the sentence is, from the start of whatever it is we're talking about. And in John 6, what he's talking about is the betrayal of Judas, Judas's betrayal of him. So the most natural reading of this uh, phrase is, from, from the time that Judas was going to betray him, Jesus knew it. From the time that Judas resolved in his heart, from the beginning of, uh, of when it was resolved in Judas's heart to, to betray Jesus, Jesus knew it. But it doesn't mean from be the beginning of Jesus' ministry, let alone from the beginning of the world. It just means when Judas decided that, it was a done thing. Secondly, this phrase, doomed to destruction. The Greek is hoios apoleos. And it literally means son of destruction. The Semitic concept of son of simply means suited for or fitted for or expresses the nature of. Barnabas, the word Barnabas, the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. It just means he's one who encourages. There's nothing destined about it. All it means here is Jesus saying, I haven't lost any except that one who has made himself fit for destruction. His nature is now suited for destruction. But it doesn't mean that it was that way from the foundation of the world or from the start of Jesus' ministry. It means now that at the time that Jesus is praying this, Judas has this nature. But there's nothing destined to it. I don't like those translations that say that Judas was destined for destruction. No, it, it, he had the nature of destruction at the time Jesus was praying it, but that's all the phrase means. And now let's look at this phrase, to fulfill Scripture. And I'm going to go into a little more depth on this one because this is probably the most frequently misunderstood one. And again, this is going to be new to some folks. I just ask you to keep an open mind. We tend to read into that phrase something that I don't think that phrase usually entails. We tend to read that phrase as though it was predicting something that had to be fulfilled. We come at this sort of with a mindset of, uh, sort of a, you know, a horoscope or a zodiac or you know, Nostradamus or Edgar Cayce and, and uh, predictions and stuff. And so we think that to say something is fulfilling something else means that that, uh, that, that verse prophesied this and it had to happen. I'm going to suggest to you that that is not necessarily the case. Uh, the passage that Jesus refers to in uh, Luke, it goes back to Psalms 41 which reads, even my close friends, this is David talking now, even my close friends, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Notice that this verse isn't saying anything about the future, let alone something that has to happen in the future. David is just complaining that a friend betrayed him. There's nothing predictive about it. But if there was something predictive about that phrase, wouldn't you think there'd be something predictive about the phrase before it? In the whole context, it's always good to put a verse in context. So let's put this in context. Look at Psalms 41 again. Let's go back to verse 4. This is David again saying, I, ha I said, I have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Is that verse saying something that Jesus is going to pray? I don't think so, because Jesus never sinned. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, a vile disease has beset him. Apparently David is writing this where he's, he's really sick. A vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, now comes this, this prophecy, or what people read as a prophecy, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. 
Well, if that last phrase is specifying something that has to happen when Jesus comes on uh, on the scene, don't the other phrases have to as well? So we have to ask, did Jesus ever pray for forgiveness? No, because he never sinned. Was Jesus ever stricken by a vile disease? Not that we know of. It's not in the Gospels. Did his friends, does enemies ever whisper against him? He'll never recover from this disease. Not that we're told in the Gospels. Um, you know, did, did, did uh, uh, he ever have people, uh, you know, suspecting that God was judging him for this disease he was going through? We don't find any of this. So if those verses don't specify something that has to happen in the future, why think this last verse about him being betrayed is something that had to happen? Just think about that. I'll give you another example of this. In John 19, uh, Jesus is on the cross, uh, right towards the very end, and John says this. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to his lips. So that scripture would be fulfilled. You might get the impression that this guard had to give Jesus vinegar when he was thirsty to fulfill this verse that was written a thousand years ago. So it must have been destined that this guard would give Jesus vinegar for water. But let's look at the verse that was fulfilled. John is here referring to uh, Psalms 69. And here David, or whoever wrote this psalm, says, They put poison in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Again, this is the psalmist complaining. But notice, he's not predicting anything about the future. He's just saying what is happening to him. And ask this, if the last half of this sentence is a prophecy that had to be fulfilled, how could the first half of the sentence not be a prophecy that had to be fulfilled? But we never hear about Jesus being given poison for food. Something else is going on here. The problem, I think, is that we, we, we come to this text with a sort of occult understanding of what it is to be fulf- for something to fulfill Scripture, a Nostradamus, a divination sort of understanding. There are genuine predictions in the Bible that are fulfilled, absolutely. But usually when the Bible talks about something fulfilling Scripture, that's not what it means. For, for, for most Hebrews, when to say that an event fulfills Scripture, what it means is that event fills out the full meaning of Scripture, fills to the full, fulfill, it fulfills Scripture. So when the gospel authors note that, that uh, uh, Jesus, when he was giving vinegar for water, it fulfills the passage about David being, being, uh, giving vinegar to, to, to quench his thirst, they don't mean that what happened to David necessitated what was going to happen to Jesus. They simply mean that when Jesus was given vinegar for for water to quench his thirst, Jesus was manifesting, fulfilling the meaning of what happened to David. He was illustrating the sort of mistreatment that God's servants always go through. But it's not that that had to happen. If that hadn't happened, if, if no one had given Jesus vinegar for water, we wouldn't be sitting around there going, gosh, there's a prophecy in the Bible that didn't get fulfilled. And the proof of that is that none of us are sitting around going, gosh, there's a prophecy that wasn't fulfilled because no one gave Jesus poison for food. See what I'm saying? Or when Judas betrays Jesus to fulfill Scripture, they're not saying that David's betrayal required that Jesus had to be betrayed, but they're simply saying now that Jesus is betrayed, this happened to him, they see the parallel here, 
And so Jesus fills out the full meaning of what happened to David. God's servants have been betrayed by their best friends. He fills out the full meaning of it. But it wasn't that it was predicted. What happens is the gospel authors, as, as they see the events of Jesus' life, they go back and they're steeped in the Torah and they're reading the Old Testament and they find these parallels. And so they're looking at how Jesus fills the full meaning of the Old Testament. But they're not saying that because of these things that happened to David or whoever, certain things had to happen to Jesus. Now that they've happened, they retroactively look back and they say, ah, Jesus fills out the meaning, but it's not that that had to happen. And that's how it is for most of the prophecies, quote unquote, that are fulfilled in the Gospels. When it says they cast lots for Jesus' garments or the guard who put the spear in his side or the breaking of of Jesus' legs or his fleeing into Egypt and coming out of Egypt. If you go back and read the verses that supposedly uh, required this to happen, you'll see that they don't predict anything. They're not predictive at all. But now that it happens with Jesus... Uh, they, the gospel authors look back and they see the parallel and they say Jesus fills out the full meaning of these verses. So no one had to betray Jesus. But given that Jesus was betrayed, there's a parallel here and Jesus fulfills the scripture. Now you might be wondering, well gosh, if Judas didn't betray Jesus, well then how would Jesus uh, be crucified? Because we know that was decreed. My response to you is this. There's a thousand, maybe a million ways that Jesus could have got crucified. This is the way it, in fact, went down. And so we find parallels to the Old Testament. But if it would have went down some other way, maybe he would have been poisoned. Now we'd be looking at the poison part of that verse as saying, Jesus fulfilled that verse. But it didn't have to happen. So the bottom line is that Judas was not destined for destruction. No one is destined for destruction. Because God is all good, and an all good God doesn't destine people for destruction. Somebody say amen. I don't know if you believe me yet. So you want some more verses? Fine, I'll give you more verses. You want verses? I got verses. Look at this. Uh, uh, Just a a few things here. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is good, Paul says, and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people, everyone say all people. Who wants all people to come uh, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. All people. That includes, let me ask you, does that include your mother? Does it include your stepmother? Does it include your mother-in-law? Does it include your grandmother? Does it include me? Does it include you? Does it include Judas? It includes all people. He wants all people to be saved. He doesn't destine certain people to be destroyed. Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Say all people. All, last I checked, includes everybody. Does that include Obama? Does that include John Edwards? Does that include George Bush? Does that include Hitler? Does that include me? Does that include you? All people includes all people. God wants all people to be saved. That's his heart. He doesn't select certain people to be destroyed. 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone. Say anyone. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone. Say everyone. Everyone to come to repentance. Everyone includes all people. Does that include Mussolini? Does that include Osama bin Laden? Does that include Stalin? Does that include the grouchy neighbor down the street? Does that include that total pagan, heathen, perverted person that you met three weeks ago? Or whatever. Who cares? It includes them. Because everyone includes everyone, and God doesn't want anybody to perish. And anybody means he doesn't want anybody to to perish. He's a God with relentless love who pursues all people all the time. His heart is to put a bear hugger on every human being that's ever lived, that ever will live. 
First Peter, or First Timothy chapter 2, Jesus Christ gave himself as a ransom for all people. Say all people. First John chapter 2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But lest you think he's a parochial God, a sort of, you know, a God who prefers some over others, John adds. And not only for ours, of course not. Never think that. But also for the sins of the whole world. The whole world. All people throughout all of history, God's heart has been to save them. And Jesus died for each and every one of them. That includes me. That includes you. That includes Judas. That includes Mussolini, that includes Pol Pot, it includes Nero, it includes every sick leader this world's ever seen, and we've seen a lot of them. But God's heart is to embrace them in his love. And what that means, folks, is that you are not destined for destruction. No one is destined for destruction. Your cheating does not put you outside the range of God's love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Your murder doesn't put you outside of God's love. Your abortion doesn't put you out of God's love. Your abortions don't put you out of God's love. Your nasty gossip habit doesn't put you out of God's love. Get rid of that for sure. But it doesn't put you out of God's love. Your greed doesn't put you out of God's love. Your gluttony doesn't put you out of God's love. Your perversion doesn't put you out of God's love. Your homosexuality doesn't put you out of God's love. Your blasphemy doesn't put you out of God's love. And even your self-righteousness, if you can believe it, doesn't put you out of God's love. No. It goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. He's a relentless God, a pursuing God. He never, ever gives up on you. God's destiny, what his hope is for all human beings, is not destruction, not for a single one ever. His, the destiny he has for every person who comes in this world is that they will join him as part of his bride and dance with him in his love and joy and peace throughout all of eternity. And nothing, nothing, no, nothing cheers my heart up more. When I'm in the pit, and we all get in the pit sometimes, when I'm in the pit, I think this thought, and it cheers me up. It's the happiest thought I can have. I just, I know God's heart. This all-embracing heart. Uh, this, this heart that, that there is no disqualifier. It's just relentlessly is, is trying to pull people in. All people, all the time. And that the destiny that God has for every human being that lives however evil and nasty is for them to be dancing with him throughout all eternity. His heart is that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. His heart is that as all were in Adam, so all will be in Christ. That's why I can look at every human being and, and be optimistic towards them because I know God is working at them and will not stop. They can keep pushing them away. They do, they do, uh, but, 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 but that's not God's heart for them. We've got to purge every lap. See, everything hangs on our trust in God. We have no choice but to trust God. But he gives us so many reasons to trust him. And yet there's some out there who will teach that, no, God's love is selective, partial. Yeah, he glorifies himself by saving some, but he glorifies himself by damning others we've got to purge that, 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 that suspicion that there's a malicious streak in him out of our minds. God looks like Jesus Christ dying on the cross, praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If you see me, you see the Father. Look at that and know that that is the Father's heart. So the answer to question number one is Judas was not destined for destruction. Let's go to the second question. And what some usher tell the children's church, we're going to go about five minutes over. All right, so just, that's all right. Uh, why did Judas betray Jesus? Now, you're probably thinking, and probably most people listening to this through podcasts or television are thinking, well, duh, duh. He was greedy. He wanted 30 pieces of silver. End of story. Maybe, may, maybe, maybe, but I will just tell you that I'm not buying that. You're not buying that. It's the Bible. Well, something else I think is going on. Consider several things here. And it's always good to ask questions. You, know, you may not get an answer, but you get the, the best stuff of Scripture when you ask questions and dig, 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 dig. 
So is that really the case? Now, here's the thing. Throughout the Gospels, throughout Jesus' ministry, uh, Judas is one of the 12, and he's referred to as one of the 12, and that's never qualified. Like at one point, Jesus says to the 12, you will sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And Judas is one of those 12. And so that tells me at that point, Jesus, in good faith, is hoping that Judas will be one of the 12. And when they send out the 12 as, as part of the 70, and they go out and, 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 and do the miracles and cast out demons and heal the sick and raise the dead, Judas was part of that. And when they come back and says that they were all rejoicing, Judas was part of that. He was part of the, the entourage. And, and Judas saw Jesus do these miracles in love with this outrageous love, this other-oriented servant love. And he saw Jesus cast out demons and heal the sick. All of that. For three years he got this, and you're telling me for 30 pieces of silver, he trades it all in. Now, 30 pieces of silver was a good chunk of change back in those days. It was worth about four months' uh, salary for the average worker. But still, he'd trade in all that for 30 pieces of silver. Now, it's possible because people can be sick with greed. But maybe there's something else going on. Here's what else might be going on. We all know that, or most of us know that, because I say it from the pulpit here quite a bit, all of Jesus' disciples, with the exception maybe of Matthew, were hoping that Jesus would restore Israel and would defeat the Romans. That was so widespread. That's, that's what the Jews longed for. It was almost a uniform view, except for the tax collectors and a few others who benefited by Roman occupation. All the other Jews wanted God to come, and they thought the Messiah would help them rise up in military might and overthrow the Romans. In fact, uh, some of them were, were giving accounts of how they, they anticipated this final battle to be fought in Armageddon, and how the, the Jews would go up against the Gentiles, the heathens, the Romans, and others, and though they were massively outnumbered, they were expecting legions of angels to show up and fight on their behalf, and they'd be led by this political, nationalistic, military Messiah, and they would defeat uh, the heathen, and then Israel would be restored, and then God would be displayed to be the God of the whole world instead of just the God of Israel. They were hoping for that. Which, by the way, if you think about that, it gives a special kind of uh, poignancy to when Jesus says to the disciples, I could call legions of angels. And the disciples at that point are going, yeah, 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 that's what we're hoping for. But Jesus says, but I'm not going to. Uh, but I'm not going to. See, this is why the disciples, they never got, they never understood or they never accepted Jesus when he started talking about suffering. It went in one ear, not the other. Because it was so obvious to them what the Messiah was going to do, come with military might. And so when Jesus would talk about his suffering, they just didn't get it. That's why in Matthew 16, Jesus says, okay, it's time for me to go down to Jerusalem and suffer. So Peter stands up and says, no, Lord, we will not allow this to happen. We will fight for you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Because at that moment... Peter was playing the role of, and maybe under the influence of Satan, the adversary. He was coming between Jesus and the cross. He was allowing his nationalistic, political, and military ambitions to come between Jesus and the cross. And to that degree, he was playing the role of Satan, the adversary. Even after the resurrection, even after the resurrection, the disciples don't get it. We find this in Acts chapter 8. Uh, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, it says, And when they met together, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you now going to finally kick some Roman butt? Finally? I mean, you threw us off a little bit with that, that resurrection thing. I mean, we were really screwed up for a while. But you resurrected. So clearly now is the time when you're going to restore Israel, right? And Jesus just says, 
go wait in Jerusalem, and then he ascends into heaven. And I kind of imagine him shaking his head like this when he was ascending into heaven. Oh, oh Father. Anyway. They still don't get it. Now, there's a whole segment of the Eastern Orthodox Church. A lot of folks don't know about the Eastern Orthodox Church, but they're, they're one-third of all Christians on the planet. Most Westerners know about Catholics and Protestants, but the Eastern Orthodox Church re- represents another branch of, of Christianity, and it's got some beautiful aspects to, it, a- aspects to it. And a dominant teaching in the Eastern Orthodox Church is that Judas wasn't primarily interested in the 30 pieces of silver. Judas was a hyper-patriotic, misguided disciple who in betraying Jesus was simply trying to, get G- trying to force Jesus' hands, trying to precipitate this final battle. He, he, he believed Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't believe in the way Jesus was the Messiah. He was convinced to the core of his being that when push came to shove, then Jesus would surely bring down the legions of angels and engage in this victorious warfare against the Romans. Uh, his last, his surname, Iscariot, maybe indicates that. Uh, some scholars argue that Iscariot uh, is, is, it comes from the word Sicari, and we know that Sicari was a group of hyper-zealous Jewish folks in the first century. They were the most nationalistic, political, military folks there were. They always walked around with swords, waiting at any moment to hear, see a sign from heaven to rise up against the Romans. And so if Judas came from that group, you can understand why he'd be the most invested in, in preserving this nationalistic political vision of the kingdom and the one who would be least open to this gospel of suffering. So Jesus, or Judas betrays Jesus to force his hands. Surely Jesus will now fight for us. But at that moment, as Luke indicates, he was doing the same thing that Peter did. And so he was standing in the place of Satan under the influence of Satan. He was coming between, letting his political, military, nationalistic agenda come between Jesus and the way of the cross. And we've got to be a little bit sympathetic to the guy, I think. Try to enter into how obvious it must have been for him. How obvious. Of course, read the Old Testament. Of course God wants to raise up Israel. Of course he wants us to defeat the Romans. Of course he wants good to overcome evil. Of course. And that would have been as obvious to Judas as it is to most Americans. That Of course God's more on the side of America versus Al-Qaeda. Or God's more on the side of democracy than communism. Duh, right? Well, that's where Judas was at. And so Judas decides he's just going to help God out a little bit. He'll be the fall guy. He'll help God out a little bit. And yet Judas was wrong, dead wrong. It's not that God was more on the side of the Romans against the, Israel, the, the, the Israelites. It's just that the kingdom that Jesus brought was not of this world. It doesn't play that kind of game. Judas was wrong because the way of Jesus is never the way of fighting on behalf of even something that seems obviously good and obviously right to us. The way of Jesus isn't the way of fighting for a nationalistic or political or military agenda. Even if you think it's obviously right, Judas was wrong because the way of Jesus is always the way of the cross. It's always the way of loving enemies, serving enemies, even dying at the hands of enemies. It's always the way of manifesting the humble, other-oriented servant love of God. It's never about anything else. And to the degree that anything comes between God's people living that way, uh, the call, it comes between us and living that way, to that degree, it's playing the role of Satan, the adversary. We, we might call this Judas Christianity, hence the title of the message, Judas Christianity. Whenever we co-opt Jesus into our agenda rather than submitting our agenda to Jesus, we're dabbling with Judas Christianity. Whenever we use Jesus to confirm our agendas, agendas that seem obviously true and righteous and just, 
Whenever we do that, rather than following Jesus on the way to the cross, living a cross lifestyle, we are, to that degree, dabbling in Judas Christianity. Whenever we betray the true Jesus, the crucified Jesus, for the sake of a Jesus that fits our common sense and usually happens to agree with us, and we get our 30 pieces of silver because we benefit by it, to that degree, we're involved in Judas Christianity. And you can always tell the difference, always tell the difference between Jesus Christianity and Judas Christianity because Jesus Christianity always looks like Jesus. Whereas Judas Christianity always looks like just a more zealous religious version of what's already out there. And what's already out there is everybody trying to promote their agendas and winning. They just Christianize it. Judas Christianity. And by that criteria, we've got to forthrightly acknowledge that much of Christianity throughout history since the 4th gen- century, has been, to some degree, a Judas Christianity. Jesus has, was consistently co-opted by the obviously right, obviously true, obviously noble agendas of, of people. Political, national, military. And the result was that in Jesus' name, rather than serving enemies, we cut off their heads. In Jesus' name, we conquer. In Jesus' name, we persecute. All for righteous causes, mind you. But in Jesus' name, we end up not looking at all like Jesus. That is... That is uh, Judas Christianity. We get our 30 pieces of silver. We get our land. We get our victory. But in the meantime, we're standing between Jesus and the cross. We're not living out the true Calvary lifestyle. And there's echoes of Christianity, of Judas Christianity yet today. Let's just say it out loud. I think whenever we hear talk of America being a Christian nation, we're dabbling in Judas Christianity. Whenever we hear talk about one political party being a little more Christian than the other political party, we're dabbling in Judas Christianity. Whenever we, we get, hear Jesus invoked to protect our rights and to take away the rights of other people because their sins are worse than ours, we're dabbling in Judas Christianity. And yes, when we hear, as we've heard the last two weeks, about uh, folks, no doubt with good intentions and doing what is obviously right for them, but when they inscribe Bible verses on the guns they sell to the military, they're dabbling in Judas Christianity. They're sincere, they're just trying to help God out, but in trying to do that, they're betraying the way of the cross, which is always about getting low and humbly serving others, helping Jesus out. It's all over the place. Okay, I'm going to go there. Uh, Five years ago, remember five years ago, or six years ago, there was a petition going around, uh, and, and they're trying to get all these pastors to sign it. And the petition was, was basically this. They want us to sign this letter to George Bush uh, and encouraging him, demanding actually, uh, that he not before a peace process in the Middle East. Uh, that he, certainly not before a two-state sol- solution or surrendering any land to the Palestinians. And the reason was because, because on their interpretation, uh, the Bible has prophesied that Israel is to have all that land and Jesus won't come back until they have all that land. So we need to sign this so that Jesus will come back. And now in the na- we who are called to be peacemakers in the name of the, the peacemaker are preventing peace from happening. Two problems with that at least. One is that it's never good to set political policy on the basis of your interpretation of the Bible. Secondly, if it was prophesied and faded, then God really doesn't need your help now, does he? So if God wants to take care of it, let God take care of it. Stay out of his business. <laughs> but see, they're trying to help Jesus along. He's trying to help Jesus along, but in the meantime... We become adversaries to living a Calvary-like love style that no, no longer makes the distinctions between who's Jewish and who's Palestinian, who's American or who's Korean or whatever. It's just blocking the whole process. We betray the crucified Savior. We get our 30 pieces of silver because maybe we win, but we're being played. We're being played by the devil. 
The way of Jesus is never the way of our agendas, never the way of defeating the bad guys, never the way of defending ourselves, standing up for our rights, never the way of getting God to do what we think is obviously the right thing to do. The way of Jesus is always the way of Calvary, always the way of sacrifice, always the way of humility, always the way of service, always the way of love, always the way of carrying the cross. And anything that gets in the way of that, I don't care how noble, true, righteous it is, Peter was noble and true when he stood up to Jesus. Anything that prevents us from doing that is to that degree participating in Judas Christianity and it's being used by Satan. This applies not just to big issues. I'll close with this. It applies not just to big issues. It applies to our personal lives. It applies to everything. Because isn't that the case that we often make our plans? We have our agendas. We do our plans and we do our agendas and then we ask God to bless them. Uh, I want the house, I can afford the house, I buy the house, and then I pray God bless this house. <laughs> I want the car, I can afford the car, I buy the car, and I say, oh God, bless this car and protect my driving. Uh, I want to marry the girl, so I marry the girl, and then I ask God bless the marriage. Or I want the guy, I marry the guy, and then I ask, oh God, bless this marriage. I want to go to college because everyone's going to college, so I go to college and I say, oh God, help me get good grades. Decide I'm going to go to this church, so I go to this church and they ask God, bless me as I go to this church. And it doesn't occur to us often to first ask God, do you have an opinion about this? What is your will about this? We're so driven by our plans and so driven by our agendas because maybe they seem so obvious. This is obviously a good deal on the house, obviously a good deal on the car, obviously a, a good-looking guy, obviously a wonderful girl, but we ask God to bless after the decision rather than prior to the decision because it seems so obvious to us. I believe God is calling us to reverse this, to die to our self-interest, to die to our common sense, and to pray Jesus' prayer, not my will, but yours be done. The difference between Judas Christianity and Jesus Christianity comes down to this. In Judas Christianity, you have an agenda that is obviously true and noble, and then you ask God, hey, bless this, and I'll help you along. In Jesus Christianity, you, you, you maybe say what you want. Jesus in the garden said, Lord, Father, I really don't want to go through this. But then he added, nevertheless, not my will, but my, thine be done. And so in Jesus' Christianity, we take our agendas and we take our plans. And we maybe are real by saying this is what we think should happen, this is, what, this is what we want. But we always pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And we pray it before we make the decision. We put it up on the altar. We offer it up on the offer, uh, altar as a living sacrifice. What is your will for this house, for this car, for this relationship? and everything else in our life. So the question I leave us with is, is there an area of our life where we've been doing our own thing, our own plans, our own agenda, and then asking God to bless it? It might be a relationship. It might be something that we're purchasing. It might be a lifestyle thing. I don't know. And can we hear the word of God this morning telling us to offer it up on the altar? And he may say yes, but he may say no. But Jesus' Christianity is always about first offering it up on the altar. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit seals this important message into our hearts. And we don't forget it. Uh, there's assignment sheets uh, out on the hub if you want to pick some of those up to help you process this throughout the week. I encourage you to do that and to be talking about this and to be praying about this because it's not the kind of thing that you can just know it intellectually and then it happens. This is something that's got to percolate and saturate our hearts and our minds. As I'm praying, uh, the altar will be open and if you want to come forward for prayer, I encourage you to do that, whatever the matter may be. 
Uh, for those who would like to ask me questions and talk about th- this uh, message, normally I stick around uh, after the service and do that, but it, I have to bolt right out of here because I've got another thing I have to attend to, so sorry about that. I don't mean to be rude, but I, it's what I have to do this time around. So Father, we just submit our lives to you as we end in prayer. Holy Spirit, help us to remember this. Holy Spirit, help us to internalize this, to crucify ourselves, to crucify our plans, to crucify our agendas. And regardless of how obviously right and noble and true we think they are, to never let them come between us and the way of the cross. Help us to be a people who, Lord, seek first the kingdom of God, not our own agendas and plans. Empower us to live out the challenge of a Calvary lifestyle, a Jesus Christianity, and insulate us, protect us from ever being seduced into a Judas Christianity. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's kingdom people said. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.